Today's scripture is from the book of James, chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. This is the word of the Lord. forget to turn it on. It's way less effective if it is not turned on. <laughs> Amen. Let's, uh, let's go to our God in prayer now. Would you please join me? <coughs> oh, Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your word. Uh, God, we, we recognize the fact that we often lack wisdom, but in these pages, in your scriptures, God, we find it. So Lord, help us to know ourselves, help us to know our finitude, Lord, teach us to number our days so that we can behold your greatness and your goodness all the more. We ask that you'd be with us and that your spirit would speak to us as we engage with the text that, that he inspired, God. And it's in Jesus' great name we pray, Amen. Well, a phrase that I hear uh, quite a bit from my five-year-old, which I think 20 years ago, no one would have envisioned this phrase coming from a five-year-old, is, let's look it up. <laughs> it's a brave new world, one where five-year-olds questions like, what was the biggest meat-eating dinosaur, a Spinosaurus, just so you know, or what is the best preserved meteorite crater on Earth? It's the Behringer Crater in Arizona. Uh, or how far away is Madagascar? It's 11,034 miles. All of these questions can be answered immediately. Fun fact, today more information is generated in 10 minutes than had been generated in all of human history up to this point. But despite that, despite having more information than we know what to do with, many of us are plagued by anxiety when it comes to making decisions, right? Try, trying to determine which way we should go. And this points to an important reality. When we are dealing with things that really matter, we need far more than mere information. We need wisdom. And unfortunately, as Kevin DeYoung points out, we have more information than ever before, and yet our wisdom has not kept with our knowledge. But thankfully, our text this morning gives us 
hope. If we want wisdom, we can get it. All we have to do is ask. And God gives generously to all without reproach. So before we dig into this text, I want you to consider for just a minute, where do you need wisdom in your life? Are there decisions that you're facing right now that seem too big for you to make on your own? Where in your life do you lack wisdom? Begin wrestling with those questions now as we engage with this text. Now, our passage today is connected with the previous four verses, which we looked at last week. James opens his letter by telling us to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And these verses are telling us that the thing we need in the midst of those trials, the thing that will help us to find joy, to learn from them so that we might develop steadfastness and maturity, is wisdom. So in these verses, I want us to take a look at three things. First, what is wisdom? Second, how we get wisdom. And third, what wisdom looks like. All right, so first, what is wisdom? Well, wisdom throughout Scripture is connected to knowledge. The Hebrew word hokmah and the Greek word sophia, both typically translated wisdom, are intellectual virtues with knowledge at the core of their meaning. A person can't be considered wise if they don't know anything. Right? We can't be wise and ignorant at the same time. John Calvin begins his famous work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, by saying, nearly all the wisdom we possess consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. Proverbs 1.7 tells us that the beginning of knowledge is the fear of God. In order to be considered wise, we have to know who God is, what he has done, and what he requires of us. But we also need to know ourselves, to know our finitude. We need to number our days. We need to know that on the one hand, we are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. That is a beautiful designation given to us. But on the other hand, we are sinners. Every single one of us. That is like one of the primary things that unites this group of people in this room. Is the fact that we all share that common title as sinners. And yet, we are still known and loved by God. In order to be considered wise, we need to know both of those things. Knowledge is key to wisdom, but wisdom is more than knowledge. In Scripture, a person is wise not simply because they have the right information, but because they choose to live in accordance with it. The theologian J.I. Packer writes, Wisdom in Scripture means choosing the best and noblest end at which to aim, along with the most appropriate and effective means to it. Right, so put very simply, wisdom is knowing the right thing to do and then doing it. It requires knowledge, but it is more than, more than knowledge. Just to illustrate that point, there's a, there's a podcast I listened to a while back that did a segment on childhood like misconceptions or untruths that people carried way too long with them, like well into adulthood. Um, one person interviewed said that they thought that, that crossing signs that you see out in public, you know, school crossing or train crossing or deer crossing, something with a symbol or a word and then X-I-N-G, 
This person thought that the crossing, the X-I-N-G, was pronounced zing. So she discovered, again, as an adult in her 20s, that it's not actually pronounced zing because she was walking with a coworker and came up to an intersection and said, they should put a zing sign here. <laughs> and the suggestion was met with confused silence. Uh, another person interviewed said that she believed that unicorns were real into adulthood. And it seemed totally plausible to her because if you think about it, you know, a unicorn feels way less fantastic than a dinosaur. It's a, it, it's a horse with a horn. Right? So she just pictured unicorns out in the wild with like zebras or something. And she discovered that unicorns were in fact fictional uh, because at a party, uh, she asked the question to a group of people, are unicorns like extinct or endangered? <laughs> she too was met with awkward silence. There's a theme there. Now, the people being interviewed were intelligent people, but they lacked important information, which made them sound foolish. So we need knowledge in order to be wise. But again, knowledge by itself isn't enough. I'm sure we all know very smart people, very knowledgeable people, people who know better, who do very foolish things. I had a conversation the other day with someone who was describing one of their friends and something foolish that they had done, and they they, they described this person as being very smart. You know, he's a lawyer, but he just doesn't have any common sense. We have people like this in our lives. I'm sure someone like that, if given a test on what, what a smart decision in a certain circumstance would be, would probably be able to mark the correct answer. He probably knows the right thing to do, but the question is whether or not he is wise enough to do it, right? to live in accordance with the best and noblest aim. We need wisdom in order to live well in the world that God has made. The question then becomes, how do we get it? How do we get wisdom? Well, thankfully, verse 5 tells us very clearly and plainly, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. This verse is a good reminder that trials in the Christian life are not times when we're expected to know exactly what to do. James assumes both that we will need wisdom and yet lack wisdom, which is why he, he counsels to ask God for it. We are supposed to feel that we need God's help. It's healthy at times to realize and admit that we don't know what to do. But thankfully, wisdom is a gift that God is happy to give. And notice how he gives this gift. He gives generously to all without reproach. And this last phrase could also be translated without finding fault. This, to me, feels like the gospel in a nutshell. We are given what we don't deserve. We all have faults and flaws. But all of the things that should disqualify us from receiving anything from God are wiped away in Jesus. Through Christ, we are presented as faultless and blameless in the presence of God. This is what Paul tells us in Colossians 1.22. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you 
holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The only requirement to be described in such a way is faith, is trusting in God, placing your faith in Jesus. Again, this verse tells us that God is pleased to help us. When we need wisdom, and we will, we all do, God will grant it generously to all and without reproach. So the one condition that's placed on this promise is faith, which we read about in verses 6 through 8. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What James says about doubt here is, is strong, and I think it's very different from a lot of the messages about doubt that we see in our culture. The Christian author Paul Miller writes, Cynicism is increasingly the dominant spirit of our age. Cynicism is the air we breathe, and it's suffocating our hearts. Unfortunately, cynicism has become almost synonymous with wisdom in our culture. We are wise if we are cynical. Because the cynic sees him or herself as being able to see through everything. C.S. Lewis, however, points out the problem with that approach to life when he writes, you cannot go, go on explaining away forever. You will find that you, have explained, that you have explained explanation itself away. You cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. We need wisdom. And God calls us to ask him for it, but he wants us to do it with a spirit of trust. Today, it is, it is somewhat, somewhat common right, to praise doubt and to treat doubt as a virtue in and of itself. And you know what? There is a place for doubt. It's oftentimes a tool that God uses. I have I've experienced that in my own life, periods of doubt in, in which I have been carried by God through that. Sometimes it is, it is necessary for us to go through trials and, 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 and doubts and, and to wrestle with those things. But doubt is not an end in itself. You can think of it this way. Doubt, I think, can be likened to a hallway. Sometimes you find yourself in a hallway. It's not necessarily a bad thing to be in a hallway. But you walk through a hallway to get somewhere. You don't want to make your home in a hallway. You're just in everybody else's way. It's not a good way to live. We don't want to live in a perpetual state of doubt, of skepticism. But what James is talking about here isn't reference to doubt in general. He's talking about when we approach God in asking for wisdom. He's saying that as we do so, we shouldn't be double-minded. And this word translated double-minded could also be translated two-souled. John, John Bunyan called the double-minded person Mr. Facing Both Ways. James is describing the person with split allegiances. It's someone who is torn between God and, and the world and is therefore unstable in all of his ways. 
The doubter in this passage is someone who wants to hedge their bets. They'll ask God for wisdom, but they'll also look over their shoulder to see if the world has something better to offer. And such an attitude doesn't give God the honor that he's due. And that person asking in that way shouldn't expect to receive from God. I imagine someone comes to you for help, and they proceed to make it very clear that they think that they can fulfill their request on their own. And what happens to your motivation to help that person? Uh, Katie and I are still somewhat new to the whole like home ownership game. Um, we feel tremendously grateful to, to have a home, but we've also found that there's always something wrong. There's always something that needs to be fixed. And we have been renters up to this point in our married life. And I felt very capable of fixing those things because fixing those things just meant calling my landlord and saying, there's a problem. And now I, I'm my landlord. But thankfully, God has filled this church with uh, kind and gracious people, people who have been willing to offer help and support at various times. But let's say I had a project that I was facing and I, and I went to one of these kind and generous people and asked them for assistance, but then, and, and, and they, invite, they, they, they invited themselves, they, they offered to come and, and help me. But I then made it very clear, like, I'm going to ask for a few other opinions and then I'm going to go with the person whose opinion I think is, is, is the most competent and capable. That would not be a very respectful or gracious attitude, would it? A person, a person asking for help in that way shouldn't really expect to receive it. Now, what I just described is not a kind thing. It's not a kind approach. But it's also not crazy. Oh, that is crazy socially. But just intellectually, it's not the craziest thing in the world, right? Because whoever I'm asking is probably not an expert in the field. And even if they were an expert in the field, they're still human. Humans make mistakes. But when we approach God that way, that is completely absurd. Because God is the source of all wisdom and all knowledge. We are finite. We don't see things as they truly are. We make mistakes, but God doesn't. So when we ask him in this double-minded, unstable way, it's all sorts of problematic. The truth is, in order to go to God in the way that he is calling us, we need to go before him humbly, ready to receive his wisdom. T.S. Eliot once wrote, the only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. Now, when we doubt, notice in this passage who is most negatively affected. It's not God. It's us. The text does not say, don't approach God with doubts or, or don't approach God in a double-minded manner because you might hurt his feelings. No, it says, don't do this because it will harm you. If we continually give voice to our nagging questions, we end up unstable. It's essentially like doing the spiritual splits. I've never done the splits before, but I'd imagine that it is a very uncomfortable experience. And James says, so is the spiritual equivalent, where we have one, one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the advice of the world. 
Christian wisdom is pulling us in one direction, and worldly wisdom might be pulling us in the other direction. And in such a, presi- such a position is precarious. It is unstable. And James likens the person who does that to turbulent waves bouncing haphazardly all over the sea. Now, with such a mindset, again, that person shouldn't expect to receive from God. James' point is clear. We need to be sincere about receiving God's wisdom as he is about giving it to us. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to muster perfect faith in order to approach him. Throughout scripture, we see doubting, faltering people still used by God. And there are times when all we can pray is, I believe, help my unbelief. I love what John Calvin has to say on the subject. In his commentary on James, he says, Since we see the Lord does not so require from us what is above our strength, but that he is ready to help us, provided we ask, let us therefore learn whenever he commands anything to ask of him the power to perform it. I love this prayer from St. Augustine who says, Lord, command what you will, but give what you command. God, I don't have perfect faith. Please give me the faith that I need. It's a prayer of humility. All right, so we've talked about what wisdom is. We've talked about how we get it. Let's talk briefly now about what it looks like. And I think we get a glimpse of that in verses 9 through 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. This is the wisdom of God. And it's presented here in a paradox. Now, the actual dictionary definition of a paradox is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. But I like the definition put forward by G.K. Chesterton, who calls a paradox a truth standing on its head, shouting for attention. The wisdom of God is the wisdom of the upside-down kingdom in which the lowly are exalted and the exalted are humbled. This is the kingdom in which the first will be last and the last will be first. So what we see in in these verses first is the exaltation of the lowly. Now the word translated lowly here usually refers to the poor, those of humble circumstances. And what's interesting is that in these verses, James' exhortation to the person in a lowly position isn't simply to take heart or to look on the bright side. Instead, the lowly brother is to boast. Why? Because in the gospel, the lowly, the poor, are exalted. Regardless of the status a person holds in this life, in Christ The lowly are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Not only that, they are called a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. In Christ, the lowly have hope. They have a place. They will be exalted. 
every person, according to God's wisdom, has dignity, worth, and value. The marginalized are given a position and a voice. And in the next verses, James turns to the rich. And to the rich, he says, there is a call to boast, but not this time in their exaltation, but in their humiliation. See, in the gospel, not only are the lowly exalted, but those in high positions are humbled. Those with talents, abilities, wealth, and resources are reminded that all that we have, all that we've earned, all that we've accomplished, I'm saying we, I mean you, everything that we have will one day rot. Nothing that we build will last forever, and none of our accomplishments or earnings have any effect on our standing before God. Those who appear to be doing well now are just as dependent on the grace of God as the lowly brother or sister. But instead of telling the rich people to mourn over their humiliation, weep, you rich people. No, James calls them to boast in it. Why? Because there is tremendous freedom in knowing that the things that seem so important right now, achieving wealth and status, holding on to a level of comfort, building a legacy that's focused on anything other than the kingdom of God, those things do not and will not last. Therefore, you don't need to be anxious about them. What does last? God and other people. What do we tend to worry about? All of that other stuff. James is telling those who have a lot. He's saying, look, the gospel humbles you. And friend, that is good news. None of the things that you're working for can save you. So you need to learn to rest in God's grace. God's wisdom is disorienting, but it is, again, good news for us. And it's a truth that we need to be formed by. Instead of trying to shape our circumstances, just trying to shape God's truth to fit our own desires. C.S. Lewis in The Abolition of Man has a tremendously insightful observation about our culture. He writes, for the wise men of old, the cardinal problem of human life was how to conform the soul to objective reality, and the solution was wisdom. For the modern, the cardinal problem is how to conform reality to the wishes of man, and the solution is technique. See, we are used to, to being able to overcome obstacles, to getting our way, but wisdom recognizes our finitude our limits, our smallness compared to God's greatness. Wisdom reminds us that we are not in control, that there is a reality outside of ourselves that we need to submit to instead of trying to get reality to submit to us. And wisdom tells us that when we are anxious, when we don't know what to do, which is not a particularly uncommon phenomena. Wisdom reminds us to stop and to look up. Wisdom comforts us if we allow it with the reality that we are not in control. 
but God is. And wisdom tells us right here and right now that God is using the hard things, especially the hard things, to do a work in us, to cultivate steadfastness, to make us mature, to develop character. He's using trials to conform us into the image of Jesus for our good and for his glory. So when trials come, and they will, our call is to ask God for wisdom. Ask him to remind us that he holds us in the palm of his hand. I mean, think, how would you see your circumstances differently? How would you view your troubles differently if you continually clung to that truth? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the gift of wisdom. And Lord, we, we thank you for the fact that you give it generously to all who ask. So by your spirit, Lord, we pray that we would have the humility and the fortitude to ask you for the wisdom that we so desperately need. Forgive us, God, for trying to do things on our own. Forgive us for the ways in which we all try to conform reality to our own whims. Lord, help us to see truth. Help us to cling to it. Help us to be shaped by it. And Father, we thank you for Jesus this morning, who is wisdom incarnate. Father, help us to live in to his upside-down kingdom. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.